0: The following is a sermon that was preached at Good News Lutheran Church in Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. It was preached on Sunday, March 22, 2020, on the basis of selected verses from John chapter 9. For more information or to view our entire sermon library, visit goodnewslc.org. Thank you for listening. It is entirely possible for two people to look at exactly the same thing and yet see something completely different. In fact, maybe you've experienced this before where you are confronted with a set of facts or a set of events and it seems crystal clear to you what you're looking at, but then someone else, maybe a spouse, maybe a colleague, they look at those very same things and they see something completely different. As much as that can be a source of frustration, it can also be very useful. How we see things can say an awful lot about us. In fact, you're probably familiar with these ink blot tests that psychologists sometimes use. Patients are asked to look at a random set of blotches of ink on paper and then describe what they see. Based on the answers that they give, the psychologists then assess their mental health. You probably also know that these are sometimes referred to as Rorschach tests, named after Hermann Rorschach, who made them famous with his book written back in 1921. Probably the most famous use of tests like this came in the aftermath of World War II. A psychiatrist by the name of Douglas Kelly was asked to assess the high-ranking Nazi officials that had been captured at the end of the war and were waiting to stand trial. Kelly's job was not only to assess whether or not they were mentally competent to be able to stand trial, but, but to just try and analyze them and figure them out. What kind of mental mindset, what kind of psychological profile would cause a person to commit the crimes against humanity that these men had committed? As part of his analysis, Kelly used Rorschach tests. What you see when you look at something can say an awful lot about you. To whatever degree that may or may not be true with blotches of ink printed on paper, it is absolutely true of Jesus. This morning, we're looking at this incident from the life of Jesus where all kinds of different people are confronted with the the same basic set of facts, the same basic event. In other words, they're all looking at exactly the same thing, but they all see something a little bit different. In fact, John told us that the people were divided in their opinion of Jesus. And Jesus himself said that he came into this world for judgment, to cause this split, this division between those who saw the truth about him and those who remain blind. When it comes to Jesus, it's entirely possible for two people to look at exactly the same thing and still see something completely different. In fact, when it comes to Jesus, it's entirely possible for us to just assume that we know what we're looking at, to assume we know why Jesus is important and the significance that he has for our lives and yet still remain, in many ways, blind. Thankfully, we're going to see today that Jesus was willing to step into a world full of blindness in order to bring it sight. And Jesus does that in these verses by presenting us with, well, with a Rorschach test of sorts. A test that is not asking us to look at blotches of ink on a piece of paper, but a test instead that is simply asking us to look at Jesus. As we look at these verses from John chapter 9 this morning, we're going to see that in order to test for spiritual sight, Simply look at Jesus and describe what you see. Why does Jesus need to confront us with this test? Well, as I mentioned, we live in a world that is full of blindness. And that doesn't just mean the people whose eyes don't work properly. Yes, in these verses, there is a man who is physically blind. In fact, he's been blind from birth, but he's not the only one. Jesus and his disciples were walking along when they saw this man, and the disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So as the disciples see this man who is physically blind, rather than asking themselves, I don't know how they might try and help him out, they instead want to discuss him. And they use this title for Jesus, Rabbi, which means teacher. So it seems the disciples are sort of viewing this guy the way college students might view some sort of specimen in their biology course. Let's put this guy under the microscope a little bit. Let's try and dissect him. Professor Jesus, can you help us see what we're looking at with this guy? And specifically, the question that was on their mind was this Who's to blame? Whose fault is it? They assumed that because the man had been born blind, someone was at fault. And in fact, later we find out that the Pharisees, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, they think exactly the same thing. That because this man was born in blindness, he was also born steeped in sin. The Pharisees and the disciples, their eyes worked just fine, but that didn't mean that they were able to see. I wonder if the same thing can happen to us. This week was a rather unusual week in our country, to say the least, probably unlike any week any of us has ever experienced. And yet one thing that's interesting to me, at least, is that even though we were unable to connect in person this week with the rules about social distancing and all, we probably know more about how each other's weeks went than we normally do. And the reason for that is simply this, that our weeks were probably more similar than they normally are lots of time spent at home, lots of changes to our normal routine, finding things to keep the kids busy, finding ways to stay informed on the latest news, making sure that we stay stocked up on all the essentials. In other words, we're all confronted with the same basic set of facts. We're all looking at exactly the same thing, but that doesn't guarantee that we're able to see. Like Jesus' disciples and like those Pharisees, we often want to know who's to blame. Anytime something goes wrong in our lives, we want to know whose fault is it, who started it, who caused this mess, which political leader is or is not doing the job that we think they should be doing. We also want to know what's next, what's going to happen, how are we going to fix this mess. With a plummeting stock market, what does that mean for our retirement savings? With an economy that is grinding to a halt, what does that mean for our jobs and for our incomes? How are we going to make sure, how is the government going to make sure that there are enough tests to diagnose those who are ill and enough hospital beds to treat those who are? Now, the last thing I would ever want to suggest is that those are not important things for us to see. They certainly are. But they're also not the only things that we need to see. And they're not the most important things for us to see either. I'm guessing that no matter what you read or what you listened to or what you heard this week, there was probably an underlying message, no matter what it was, a message that was either said out loud or said beneath the surface. And that message is simply this, that we're going to beat this. We're going to get through it. If we can just figure out whose fault it is, if we can just put the right people in the right places, eventually we will get through this. And again, don't get me wrong. I certainly hope that that is true. I certainly hope that at some point in the very near future we're able to look back on this and it all seems like relatively no big deal. But of course our problem is bigger than that. We live in a world that is broken beyond repair. Whether it's the coronavirus or some rare form of cancer or a car accident or heart disease or senseless acts of violence or just plain old age, No matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, we still cannot fix our broken world. Death is still batting a thousand. Death still remains undefeated. We live in a world that is completely infected by sin, and that includes our sin. What that means is that every manifestation of that sin, every iteration of that sickness, is an opportunity for us to see exactly what Jesus saw When he saw that blind man, Jesus said to his disciples, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. No amount of human ingenuity or effort is going to help. The work of God is our one and only hope. And thankfully, that's exactly the work that Jesus came to do. When the disciples looked at this man, they saw an issue that they wanted to discuss. Jesus saw an individual that he wanted to deliver. And he did that not simply by giving him physical sight. No, at the end of the verses, he he sought him out again to give him a much more important form of sight. Even though everyone else's eyes worked just fine, Jesus was the only one who could see the only one who saw an opportunity for him to step into a world that is full of blindness and make it familiar terrain for him. To step into a world where so many remain blind and to do the work of God, to do the work that would fix it. So what exactly does that look like? Well, John tells us, It says, Jesus spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. So that's it. That's all John tells us about the miracle itself. The rest of the chapter is dedicated to all of the reactions and the interactions that follow. And as John tells us about them, what's interesting to note is that never once is anyone able to successfully refute the basic facts of what had happened. There was this man who had been born blind, who now could see. This man named Jesus, who claimed to be the Messiah, he was the one who had done it. And he had done it in this rather unusual way, that he had stooped down and made some mud with his spit, taken that mud and put it on the man's eyes, and then told him to go and wash it off in a nearby pool. In other words, once again, everyone is looking at exactly the same thing, but everyone sees something a little bit different. John tells us that the man's neighbors, the people who have known him since childhood, take the skeptical approach. They simply conclude that this man that they're seeing now, who can very clearly see, is not the same as the man who was born blind. It must just be his doppelganger. It must just be a a lookalike, someone who resembles him. Well, the man's parents are able to easily refute that claim. In contrast, the the Pharisees, they don't so much question the truth about what happened, they question the truth about the one who did it. With our renewed appreciation for hygiene these days, we'd probably think of, of someone using their spit to make mud out of the dirt as a little bit unsanitary, to say the least. The Pharisees weren't so much concerned that it was unsanitary, they thought it was immoral. You see, Jesus had performed this miracle on the Sabbath day, the day when no work was allowed. And the Jewish rabbis had a law on the books that classified kneading, as in kneading dough to make a loaf of bread, as work. So Jesus had done work, which means that Jesus had sinned. And if Jesus had sinned, Jesus could not possibly be the Messiah. Again, their eyes worked just fine. They were all looking at exactly the same facts, and yet none of them were able to see. Except one, of course, except this man who had been healed. And as John tells us about him, what's very interesting to note is that for the very first time in his life, his blindness served as an asset rather than a liability. When Jesus comes in and finds this man the second time, the man has no idea who he is. There's a reason for that. The man had never seen Jesus before. His sight had not been restored until after Jesus sent him away to go and wash in the pool. So this man is looking at Jesus for the very first time. And when he is confronted with the truth about Jesus, he sees, he believes, and he worships. Everyone else in the story had assumptions and expectations about what this Messiah was going to look like. And so when they looked at Jesus, they remained blind to the truth about him. In contrast, this blind man, who had no assumptions and no expectations whatsoever, when he looked at and when he was confronted with the truth about Jesus, he saw. Again, I wonder if the same thing can happen to us. One of the biggest things that determines how we see something is our preconceived notions about what that thing is supposed to look like. Earlier, I mentioned this psychiatrist by the name of Douglas Kelly, whose job it was to try and and analyze the high-ranking Nazi officials who were captured at the end of World War II. Do you know what he found? He found that their their mental states, their psychological profiles, were actually quite normal. They did not belong to some subhuman species of monsters, There was not some special form of evil that existed inside of them. No, in fact, Kelly concluded that what existed inside of them that had caused them to do the things that they had done was actually something that was common to us all, something that we all share. As you might imagine, he didn't expect to find that. And when he did, it it troubled him, and in fact, it traumatized him for the rest of his life. One of the biggest things that can shape how we see something is our preconceived notion of what that thing is supposed to look like. And just like all the people in the story, it's very easy for us to have assumptions and expectations for what the work of God in our lives ought to look like. And if we have those assumptions, then when we look at the work of Jesus, it might affect how we describe it. Like the Pharisees and like Jesus' disciples, we might actually describe the work of Jesus as immoral. It's very easy for us to assume that God works the way that our world works, that bad people are the ones who get punished and good people are the ones who ought to be rewarded. Jesus makes it very clear that's not how he works. Jesus makes it clear that no matter who you are and no matter what you've done, in fact, even if someone were a high-ranking Nazi official in World War II responsible for the deaths of millions of people, if a person like that came to Jesus looking for forgiveness. Do you know how much forgiveness Jesus would give him? Do you know what status before God Jesus would confer on that person? Do you know what type of eternity Jesus would guarantee for that person? The exact same amount of forgiveness and the exact same status before God and the exact same eternity in heaven that Jesus has given to you. If we have preconceived notions about the work of Jesus, we might just describe that as immoral. Our preconceived notions might also lead us to describe the work of Jesus as unimpressive. I mean, aside from the the gross factor involved, we might still wonder why Jesus performed this miracle the way that he did. Why stoop down into the dirt? Why make mud and put it on the man's eyes? Why send him off to a pool to wash, why why separate the man from the person who's healing him so that by the time he can actually see Jesus is long gone? Why not something a little bit more flashy? Why not some fireworks? Well Jesus still works in, in pretty much the same way. Rather than sending down a, a lightning bolt of forgiveness directly into our hearts, Jesus still stoops down and he picks up, he, he makes use of the things that he has created. He still stoops down and he picks up things like language, the same signs and sounds and syllables that we use to talk about everything under the sun, from sports to weather to politics. Jesus uses that same language to reveal to us divine truths. Jesus stoops down and he picks up water in holy baptism and uses that water, the most common element on earth, the most common compound on earth, and he uses it to wash all of our sins away, to adopt us into his family. Jesus still stoops down and he picks up things like bread and wine, joins them to his body and blood to to deliver to us forgiveness and salvation. And as Jesus does all of this, as he does all of this amazing, incredible work in our hearts and our lives, that work is so often hidden. Hidden beneath a life that very often doesn't feel any different and certainly doesn't often look all that different or all that better from anyone else's. If we have preconceived notions about what we expect Jesus to do, we might describe his work as rather unimpressive. Finally, we might also describe it as impossible. Very often the the expectations we have for the work that Jesus is going to do is limited by the low bar that we set for him. We, of course, think it's, it's a very high bar. We, we think that we are asking Jesus for big things when we ask him to cure our grandma's cancer, when we ask him to help us find a job, when we ask him to deliver us from our loneliness or our grief or our despair. I'm sure lots of people brought requests to Jesus this week for things like vaccines and medicines and hospital beds, and all of that seems really, really big. And when Jesus doesn't do the things that we ask, it'd be really a- easy for us to think, that maybe we've asked too much, that somehow Jesus has done less. Of course, Jesus is doing more, more than we can ask. In fact, more than we could ever imagine. Jesus has in store for us a future that is so bright that as our preconceived notions limit our expectations, if we were able to see it now, we would no doubt describe it as impossible. It's kind of silly when you think about it that we come up with these assumptions and expectations for how God ought to work in our world and in our lives. And then we we use the expectations we ourselves have created to judge and, and criticize and assess what God does. That's why we need Jesus to confront us with what he does and what he says in these verses. That's why we need Jesus to confront us with this test and the very difficult test that this lesson teaches. That as was the case with this blind man, when it comes to spiritual sight, blindness is an asset rather than a liability. That if we think we can already see, if we trust our own assumptions and expectations, we will look at the work of Jesus and we will remain blind to the truth. But on the flip side, if we acknowledge our blindness... If we know that our assumptions and expectations cannot be trusted, then we will look at the truth about Jesus and we will see. Just like this blind man, we will open our eyes and as if for the very first time, we will see Jesus. With, with eyes completely unclouded by anything else, we will see him. And when we do, we will see in Jesus a Savior who is so good and so gracious and so powerful that words will hardly be able to describe it. Amen.